Hello, and welcome to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I'm Chris Yeh. In this special episode, I'm going to interview my fellow mental samurai competitor, Stella Zawistowski. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. You'll actually hear Stella pronounce her name properly in the interview. Stella was one of the people who was with me and shot on the Tuesday, so we got to spend an entire day together. I got to tell you, it was intimidating watching her tear through those crossword puzzles, and it was great getting to know her. And it was even better getting a chance to do this interview because I learned so much more about the different elements of her life. For example, the fact that she met her husband on a hate date, or that she actually ran marathons before picking up CrossFit and then becoming a powerlifter. I think you'll agree, Stella has an incredible life story and a ton of fascinating things. I made sure I rushed through and edited this podcast to get it up today because Stella actually has a performance at Carnegie Hall on Thursday. And you should definitely listen to the podcast, learn more about that performance. And if you're in New York City, go check it out. Let's take a listen. Hey, Stella, are you you there? Yes, I am. It's great to have you on. So one of the reasons I get so excited for some of these interviews is when I actually get to interview somebody from my day because we spent all this time together. We did. It was like, um, you know, 18 hours without cell phones. We all became friends because we kind of had to be. It was it was, you know, throwing us back all back in time to the days before we had cell phones. And wow, you have to talk to people. And what do you know? Some people are pretty cool. Well, I have to say that the casting people did a fantastic job of getting interesting people. When you start to go through the backgrounds that people have, it is just amazing. And your background, for example, is a fascinating one. We were chatting before we got on the phone, and you said that you like to call yourself a brainy meathead, which sounds like a contradiction in terms. I Yes, I am a brainy meathead. I think that there is no dichotomy between mind and body, and as a matter of fact, um, the way I describe myself in a nutshell is that my best, my, some of my personal records include a back squat of 265 pounds and a best New York Times Sunday solving uh, time for the crossword puzzle of four minutes and 33 seconds. So when we were together stuck in these conference rooms, which were, let's face it, really boring conference rooms, I didn't get a chance to see you power lift anything, but I did get a chance to see you solving the various crossword puzzles. And I have to say, as I was watching it, I was very intimidated because you were flying through these things. Yeah, I mean, they didn't give us uh, very many to work with. I, I think, you know, they I could probably solve as many puzzles as they put in front of me, um, but they there was... Um, there was a USA Today puzzle, I remember, and I probably knocked that out in maybe three minutes or so. Amazing. Well, let's get to your story. Let's hear the whole Stella story. And by the way, l- let me understand, what is the right way to pronounce your name? Because I just called you Stella the whole time out of fear of mispronouncing it. Um, yeah, Rob Lowe said it wrong, so it's okay. He, he left out uh, the first S. It's uh, Zawistowski. I'm sure if you're actually Polish, you would say Zawistowski, but my in-laws, it, it is a name by marriage. Um, my in-laws say Zawistowski. They're from the Midwest, so um, they don't pronounce the W's as V's. Got it. Zawistowski. Excellent. And I always see it as Stella Daly Zawistowski. Is Daly your middle name? Daly is my maiden name. Um, it's an awful lot easier to say. I picked up, yeah, a lot of... Um, 
high Scrabble tile point value letters when I got married. <laughs> well, that certainly helps out quite a bit. So let's talk about your childhood. So where were you born? Where did you grow up? And how did you get onto the path of being crossword puzzle master, crossword creator, all these different things? Power lifter. Sure. I was born in Philly, um, Philly proper. And when I was uh, about six years old, my parents uh, moved out. We, we moved out to the suburbs. Um, so I've, I grew up pretty much my entire life in uh, the southeastern Pennsylvania area. And I was always a bit of a nerdy kid. The athleticism did not come until much later because even now I'm very strong, but I'm very uncoordinated. Um, I was always a klutz, picked last for every team on in elementary school and, I mean, really through high school. Um, you know, nobody wanted me on their basketball team. You still don't want me on your basketball team, frankly. Um, you want me on your weightlifting team, but not your basketball team. Um, so it, like, it took me much longer than that to realize that I had potential in terms of lifting heavy weights. So the, the, my childhood was very nerdy and not very physically active, and I spent a lot of time um, like with word games, I didn't discover crossword puzzles until I was in college, but I always loved puzzles and brain teasers of, of other kinds. Wow. That's really interesting. And was college also when you began the, the weightlifting as well, or did that happen after you graduated? I did not start weightlifting until, uh, let's see, 2011. So I was, uh, 32 and that was, um, so well after college, I took up CrossFit and I discovered when I was in the, in the process of, of learning CrossFit that the lifting of weights is my favorite part. I mean, I could deal without cardio for the rest of my life if, I, if that didn't mean that I would weigh, you know, 300 pounds. I do the cardio because I have to. I do the weightlifting because I love it. Well, talk to me about what you love so much about lifting weights because I, I admit that I will lift weights as part of my workout. You need resistance training, but it's not something where I'm like, oh, wow, I'm so glad I get a chance to do this. But for you, it really is a joy. It, it is. Um, I think there's just nothing that feels so – I don't feel ever so capable in my life as when I get under a barbell that weighs more than I do and squat it down and stand it back up or – um, you know, there's a barbell on the ground that weighs more than twice as much as I do and I can pick it up. That's incredible. And so your power lifting, is this competitive as well? Because you're a pretty competitive person. I am a very competitive person. Um, I've discovered, you know, I, I also I used to run marathons before I lifted weights and I was I'm, I'm, I was and I still am a pretty slow runner. It's more like I'm hyper competitive mentally on the things that I actually have a chance of winning. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good power lifter. Like, you know, a, a woman my weight who can deadlift 325, that's pretty strong, but it's not going to win me any meets. So it's not like I, I, I don't, I don't go in with, you know, like hard, like just hard competition the way I do to a crossword tournament where, you know, I, I really do every time, unless I screw up, I expect to place in the top 10 and I really like to place in the top five. And especially now this year, since I made fourth place for the first time in my life, I'm suddenly starting to see the podium in my sights, and that's like a new and cool experience. Um, but you know, I think I think uh, my competitive level, um, you know, directly relates to my chances of winning the thing that I'm competing at. Absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was funny about your fourth place finish is uh, tell the story about how they spelled fourth on the trophy. 
Oh, yes. Um, my crossword tournament trophy from this year says 2019 American Crossword Puzzle Tournament F-O-R-T-H fourth prize, as in not F-O-U-R-T-H, which is how it should be spelled. And so, I mean, just the irony of that, given that this is a word puzzle competition, was pretty amusing to me. Um, it's probably one of my most popular tweets of all time was when I, I tweeted a photo of that uh, that trophy and said, are people good with words here? Absolutely amazing. To think that you have a crossword competition and they can't spell fourth. It's just amazing. But then, again, I come back to the job the casting directors did. Here we are. You are a champion crossword solver. You are somebody who has created hundreds of crosswords you're a accomplished power lifter you're a marathoner i mean this is just amazing i it's funny i don't think i even talk to them about the marathons because that part of my life is over distance running and i are broken up we're not getting back together it was an abusive relationship it was very mean to my knees um but you know it, it was it was a part of my life for a while and um yeah, and then there's things we haven't even gotten to yet, which is, for example, I sing in a choir, the Oratorio Society of New York. I've been singing with this group for um, about 10 years, and I've sung in choirs almost my entire life. We have a performance coming up at Carnegie Hall. And Carnegie Hall? You have a performance at Carnegie Hall? Wow. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. It's a 200-person choir. I'm not a soloist at Carnegie Hall. I'm not that good. But, um, but yes, I am in a group that performs regularly at Carnegie Hall, usually about three times a year. So you add performing regularly at Carnegie Hall to the list of accomplishments. Well, that is pretty astonishing. Thanks. So let's talk about, you know, so you grew up in Philadelphia and Philly and then the suburbs of Philly. And then you go to college at Princeton up the, up the coast a little bit in New Jersey. Uh, what did you study and how did you come to that? Um, I majored in chemistry and, um, I, I always loved science. I am very grateful to Princeton in that they force undergraduates to write a thesis because I think that I might not have discovered otherwise that um, I'm not really cut out for a life in the lab. I thought I would go to, first I thought I'd go to medical school and my grades were okay. They weren't that good. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll go to grad school for chemistry. But the labs that you do as a freshman and sophomore and, and as a high school student that made me love chemistry, those are designed to be completed in three hours, whereas open-ended research is much more frustrating and um, and just it was not suited to my temperament at all. So I didn't I, I, I'm glad that I did not pursue an advanced degree in chemistry. Well, it turns out that you did actually end up doing a lot of things that were a good fit with your life. So where did your path take you from there and what are you doing today? So today I work in pharmaceutical advertising and the easiest way to explain that to people who don't already know what that is, is to say, ask your doctor about, um, you know, I don't, that's not exactly what I do. I don't write those ads that are directed at patients. I'm more likely to be writing some materials that a sales rep would take when they go to see a doctor and persuade them that the drug that they're selling is better than um, all the others on the market. Um, very scientific, out, it sounds like. Very, uh, very yes. information-oriented. Yeah, and it's a really good fit for me because I get to think about science without having to do the frustrations of doing science in the lab. 
And also, I mean, as you can guess from the crossword thing, from the fact that I mentioned having loved word puzzles ever since I was a kid, I've always been a reading nerd, a writing nerd, and I always loved writing. So it's just that I didn't know that you could combine writing and science in that way until a few years after I graduated college. So once, once I found that out, it seemed like a pretty natural fit. That's very cool. And it was around that time as well that you launched your career as a crossword creator. Can you talk about that? Because that is just a world I don't know a lot about, but it certainly sounds like you did a tremendous amount there. Sure. Um, and be, I would say it's a bit of a stretch to call it as a career as a crossword uh, writer. I, was, I would say you know, it was a pretty intense hobby for a while, and it's something that I'm uh, revisiting now. What happened was you know, after I, I started solving very casually in college, um, mostly as a way to avoid working on, um, you know, my homework or my thesis, quite frankly, but, um, eventually on my first job out of college, I, I lived in Connecticut and I heard that that's, that's where the American crossword puzzle tournament is in Stanford, Connecticut. So I had heard about this, the tournament, it was covered in a local newspaper and I thought, oh my gosh, a crossword tournament, I should try this out. Um, and so I went and I got my butt kicked. Um, actually, my very I'm my very first tournament. I think I placed two hundred twentieth out of the three hundreds. Um, and I promise I'm getting to how I made puzzles eventually. Um, but I ended up being so angry at how poorly I finished that I started solving more puzzles. And you know, I I went way up the ranks pretty quickly. But after a couple of years of solving seriously, um, trying to make a puzzle seem like a pretty natural step. Um, so I gave it a try and it was very difficult, the first one. Uh, my, very, my first published puzzle was in 2002 in the Los Angeles Times, um, and that was by myself. Um, then I found the, this online crossword community of constructors and some, and it was, uh, customary at that time when you had your first pu published puzzle to announce to the email list like hey check me out I'm published and so I did and someone replied to me saying you know wow that's a cool grid I can't you know I can't believe you managed to fit so many theme answers in there I and and I said oh oh that's oh thank you but you, normally I'm not very good at making the grid and and you know this is the part I find the hard and he's like really I don't like making the clues and I don't remember which one of us proposed that we work together um but his name was bruce and we started working together after that where he would make the grids for puzzles um i would write the clues either one of us could come up with a theme and some ideas for theme entries for the puzzle but then it was always him making the grid and it was always me writing the clues so um between the two of us working together we published about I think more than 300 puzzles um, between the years of 2002 and 2010. Um, wow. Yeah, it was a lot. And then, we, you know, we've been in the New York Times 14 times. We were in Los Angeles Times a lot, Games Magazine, Wall Street Journal, um, pretty much all over the place. Um, and the reason that I ended up, um, I, I ended up, what I, what I say, breaking up with him, um, it's, you know, and Bruce is still a good friend of mine. Um, you know, it was never anything personal. It was that, like I said, I work in advertising. It's a deadline driven business. Um, Bruce is retired and he kind of always wanted to do a lot more puzzles together. And I was like, please let's do less. I just, this is a hobby and I don't want it taking up all of my time. Um, especially because I also do CrossFit and I also do, um, 
Well, I guess I, I wasn't doing CrossFit by the time I I, uh, I stopped working with Bruce. I guess I was still running marathons, but still like ex between exercise and choir and, you know, wanting to spend time with my husband, I just thought I was doing more in the world of puzzle making than I wanted to. So I decided like, you know, let's, let's not collaborate anymore. And if I make just one puzzle a year by myself, that's fine with me. I just want it to be a great puzzle. And then I just kind of let it fall by the wayside and I hadn't made a puzzle for years, literally from 2010 until I tried it again this year myself for the first time in, wow, nine years. Now, just for those of us who are not crossword experts, when you say the grid and the clues, the grid is fitting together all the letters, so mm -hmm. the words are there, and then yes. the clues are, what are the clues that lead to those words? So it's sort of like Jeopardy phrased in the form of a question. Um, yeah, you can say it that way. And, and it's, um, you know, it's funny, uh, a lot of people will ask me, oh, so what comes first, the grid or the clues? But just think about that for a second. It's not possible for the clues to come first because you have to find words that fit together and then figure out how you're going to ask questions about them to get people to, like, you can't just write clues and then hope that the words that fit those clues are going to actually interlock with each other in the way that would make a viable crossword puzzle. Um, so it's always the grid first. And if there's a theme to the puzzle, that even precedes the grid is you think of, um, you know, three or four, anywhere between like three and five for a daily size puzzle, more for Sunday size entries that have something in common. And those are your, your anchors that you build the rest of the puzzle around. Got it. And I think that I read that you were doing both, you're doing themeless puzzles, but then as soon as you started doing that, you got all these themes in your mind. Yeah, that's funny. Is that, um, the themeless, um, when you say themeless in the puzzle community, it doesn't just mean any old puzzle without a theme. And there are some where the, you know, the puzzle is just all kinds of random crap in a grid. Um, you'll see that in like the, the dollar store magazines that, um, but like what I'm talking about is the kind of puzzle that runs in the New York times or the Los or basically any major newspaper on a Friday or Saturday. Um, it has no theme and it has a lot of, longer words um you know whereas most uh themed puzzles you have you have three or four like i said longer theme entries but the rest of the puzzle is mostly words of between like three and six letters in length whereas a themeless because you're not trying to constrain words to a theme um the overall composition of the grid can include more words of maybe between seven and ten letters in length and Therefore, you can exercise a bit more choice about what kind of interesting vocabulary goes in a themeless. Um, and so that's why I, and also separately, um, I feel like at least a third of my Twitter feed is me bitching about how the Friday and Saturday puzzles in the New York Times have gotten too easy lately. Um, it's not just that I've gotten better at solving it, you know, it's, I, I can tell you, like, I can go on for like 20 minutes about ways that I know the puzzle is getting easier, but that's like a whole other podcast. Um, dumbing it down, in other words. Right. Um, but I, so I, yeah, I mean, in some ways, like, I think the trivia has gotten easier as, as a deliberate choice. Um, and, and therefore, like, it used to take me five 
or so minutes online to do the New York Times Saturday puzzle. And now my average time is in the three and a half minute range. So I know that's like it's 90 seconds, but on the other hand, it's like that's that is like a third, you know, 33% drop or so. That's that's a lot. Um, it, to me, like a 90 second drop means that the rest of the world is probably spending like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes less on this puzzle than I am or, th or than they were before. And so, you know, I wanted to make more really hard, really good, hard puzzles um, because I, I spend so much time whining about the how there aren't enough really good hard puzzles in the world anymore. Um, part of my, my interview with Rob Lowe that got cut is I remember he asked me specifically about like, well, what makes the New York Times puzzle the best puzzle? And I'm like, well, it's not. Um, because I think that the hard, the best hard puzzle, at least, is now these days is the the Saturday Stumper in the Newsday that comes out from Long Island. But uh, oh man, I, I'm like I, I just I realize I just said that while I'm trying to submit puzzles to Will Shorts at the New York Times for acceptance. So maybe I shouldn't have said. Do that. Do you need me to edit ahead. that out? I, you know what? There's not a big audience. He's not going to listen. Trust me on. I know. I know. It's fine. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you this question: Have you ever done a pharmaceutical themed? crossword you know i'd have to go back through um my my puzzles with bruce from back in the day i have a feeling i may have done something like i know that my very first puzzle the one that's published in the la times was a chemistry theme um i had different i don't remember exactly what the puns were but they were all like chemistry related puns and um i remember that um you know, when the crossword editor accepted it, he said, there are some imperfect things about this theme in terms of like, there there were just rules of consistency that I didn't know existed. And I know them very well now, but I didn't at the time. But he said, I'm going to accept your puzzle anyway, because no one is doing anything like this. No one is making jokes about chemistry in a crossword puzzle. That is fantastic. Uh, one last personal topic before we get to how you got on the show. So you mentioned your husband a couple of times, Mr. Zawistowski. Tell me yes. a little bit more about, you know, how did you guys meet? What's he like? What did he think of all this? So we met the short, the one word version is we met online, but um, the longer version, which uh, it, it's, is that uh, um, I was actually back in 2003, I was engaged to somebody else. Oh, and, um, this is intriguing. Yeah, um, so I used to weigh 200 pounds, not clear on the show. Um, by the way, I've lost 20 pounds since the show, so I'm like, can we reshoot that so that I can look the way I look now? Um, I I've gained 20 pounds since the show, so no, let's keep <laughs> so, it the yeah, same you way. Keep away. Um, and I, and, and so, like, I basically the only way that I can explain why I was with this guy is for, it, you know, I, I was not feeling good about myself when I was when I was that size and just like I was willing to put up with more bad behavior um mm. this guy was not so good at holding a job he lost a job on totally his fault we um I fall he he ended up getting another job in Pittsburgh I was living in New York and so was he at the time and so I I followed him to Pittsburgh then he loses the job six months later that he was hot that we moved to Pittsburgh for um, again, his fault. Um, and I could have maybe like, I, I probably should have broken up with him then. I, we, we had a wedding plan by that point. Um, but what I said was, Hey, maybe like neither of us loves it here in Pittsburgh. And 
maybe we should both look at jobs outside of Pittsburgh. And he seemed okay with that. But then when I got a job offer back in New York City, he didn't want to follow me. Um, so I decided maybe I need this job more than I needed him. So I called off the wedding. We had three weeks to go before the wedding. Invitations were out and everything. So that was, uh, was kind of a mess. That's dramatic. And very. And um, I ended up... Um, I, I spent as little time in our shared space as possible, but I still needed to, you know, we, we lived in the same apartment and it took me about a month between when I had the job offer to when I was able to find, to move back. Um, so there were times when I had to see him, I had no choice, even though I was, you know, spending nights with friends or staying in hotels or whatever. One, four days after I called off the wedding, I came back to pick up something at the apartment and I see my, my now ex on a dating site. And he's like, look at this hot girl I'm going to go out with tonight, blah, 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 blah. So I had told myself I shouldn't date right away when I moved back to New York. I should take some time to heal. But I was so angry when I saw him doing that and, and, and how, like, rude he was about it that I ended up putting an ad on the same site and my husband replied the next day. <laughs> Revenge dating leads to true love. I love it. One of my old clients heard this story. She said, she's like, you went on a hate date. And I'm like, yes, it was a hate date. That is hilarious. And so what's his name? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he, he's like a secretive secret agent guy or something like that. Can we know his name? Oh, sure. His name is David. David Zawistowski. You mean my husband, right? Not yes, the, not, the, not the, ex. The, the ex. We don't need to know his, his information. Uh, he'll show up on, on live PD someday. <laughs> So that's fantastic. So you guys met. He was back in New York then? Yes. I, I put the ad up saying like I, I was in New York because I figured I'm going to be there in a few weeks anyway. And obviously it was, I wasn't looking for, you know, meeting a, another guy in Pittsburgh. Fantastic. So you, so you and David met. You went out. You hit it off. And you got married. This time you went through with the wedding. I did, yeah. I mean, it's kind of now that I think, oh my God, that was 16 years ago that I met him, and we got. In fact, our 10th anniversary, our 10th wedding anniversary is coming up, so we have a trip planned to um, to Italy and uh, and and a little bit in Germany as well. That is fantastic. Well, that brings us to Mental Samurai, and how did you end up on the show? Were you recruited? Did you see an ad? What happened? I was recruited. Um, I had actually um, gotten pretty far in the casting process with the same casting company for another show that they had an idea for that ended up not being produced. So American Brightest? Yes. Ah, that was the same one that they uh, that I went for many years ago, and that was how they found me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Mental Samurai is a better concept than... I, I, I remember doing the tests for America's Brightest and thinking like, it'd be cool if I get on this show and win some money, but I'm not really sure how this is going to work for the audience. Whereas like Mental Samurai was instantly clearer how things were going to work. Mm -hmm. And so they reached out to you and what happened? What, how many interviews did you do? When did you know? I went through, I think three or four different Skype interviews and um, I think the most uh, the most onerous part of that is that I live in a tiny New York City apartment. It's not. It's like the lighting's not ideal. Then they would be like, "Can you just move this over here?" I'm like, 
you're lucky that I can deadlift 325 because you're asking me to move my full dresser just so that it's not in the shot when the producer sees the like you're you're telling me really that they don't have enough imagination to imagine me without a dresser in the background but I, I moved the damn dresser hey power lifting came in handy it did so they decided we've got to have this woman on our show and so you tell your husband you say hey guess what i'm gonna go get strapped into a giant robotic arm um i mean i didn't know it was a giant robotic arm until much later i think or until until we get to the set of the show that's like you know they they told they they gave us such you know vague descriptions ahead of time i was like it's a ride it's this in fact i almost backed out of the show at, after I had been accepted, because when they sent us the uh, medical forms, um, you know, to have our doctor do a physical, your, your, you know, your primary care physician do a physical and and clear you, my doctor wouldn't sign it. She read the the language and she was just like, I don't know what could happen to you. What if you break your neck? What if you this? What if you that? And I just I didn't know enough about what the ride was to be able, you know, I. I'm like, she's probably being overly cautious, but now I'm scared. So, you know, the ride itself needed ended up near being not nearly as, uh, you know, as scary as it was as my doctor made it sound. Yeah, no, it was not something that I particularly enjoyed, although plenty of other people enjoyed it. But it wasn't something like a lot of people ask me, did you feel like you're going to throw up? I said, no, it was just uncomfortable. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, it was I don't think the ride affected my play at all i think the clock messes with your head and that's basically what happened to me i mean by the way congratulations you you killed it oh thank you uh it was we all went on the same day and and you and i were a part of the same group that got sent out so that was it was you and i and also there was clay and joey and donovan so it was this whole crew, and after us, I believe Matt Potts was waiting in the wings behind us as well, and there may have been a few other folks, but mm-hmm. you know, we were sort of together in that little pod, so we got to watch each other's run, so I got to see you go, I got to see Clay go, I got to see Joey and Donovan go before mm-hmm. I was strapped into the thing myself. Yep. Um, it was kind of fun. It was, I, I, I tell people who ask me about the experience of, of uh, being on the set that it was a lot like preschool in that you're always in line and it's always in line with the same people um so i happen to always be in line directly behind donovan and directly ahead of um terrence who unfortunately didn't end up getting filmed for whatever reason and you know donovan used to play for major league baseball and terrence used to play for the nfl so it was like me between these two like six four giants that was i thought that was kind of funny oh could you outlift them or do you think that they're still the the advantage of size would help them out (laughs) i i don't think so um especially particularly not terrence i mean you gotta (laughs) you gotta have some quad strength to play for the nfl Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I did think as I was watching your run on television that you were very aggressive with the lock-ins yes. and you did something that I thought was was pretty clever, which was you you pushed, you pulled the lever first because the thing is most people don't realize pulling the lever is the thing that actually sends your answer off, not saying lock it in. So by pulling the lever and then saying lock it in, you were actually saving like a couple of fractions of a second. I didn't do that consciously. I may have been pretty good at internalizing the instructions that we were given. Um, 
I mean, I, when I watched myself back, I could see one thing that I definitely was doing is the first two questions I think I answer before Ava finishes talking. Was like, I'm like, let's not waste time. I know what this is. Let's go. Yeah, that was smart as well. It was not always clear to everyone on the runs whether you could do that or not. I probably should have realized that since I did watch you go through it. But it was hard, like, waiting to go on, thinking, okay, now let me strategize. Let me figure out what I'm going to do. Let me measure how long it's taking Ava to move between stations so I have an accurate count of what pace I have to go. I, I wasn't thinking any of that stuff. I was just watching. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think that – and, and I, th I think that – you know, certainly Clay, I think that's what got in his way is not knowing, like, because, because you don't get to watch very many people go ahead of you. I don't think he, like, if he had had the question that he went on, that he went out on, which is his very first one, very difficult question. Yeah. I think if that had come after two or three easy questions, he would have known, you know what? I should take my time on this one. The way I took my time on the one, the damn pop music question, I was like, I can't just throw out anything. I'm, I'm you know, I, I can't, I, I have to at least try to get this right because if I just throw out the name of some random song, it's not going to be right. Um, and eventually I talked my way to the correct answer. Um, but after having, um, you know, blitzed through ones where it's just like, well, yeah, I know, I know it's the Rose Parade. It's not the Tulip Parade in Pasadena. Um, you know, like, I don't, I don't need to spend time on this. And they didn't tell it. I, I've been on Jeopardy as well. And in, in Jeopardy, they, they specifically tell you, you can't ring in until after Alex has finished, finished reading the question. And there's actually a visual signal to the contestants, which the viewers don't see, um, that lets you know that it's time, that it's time. And since they didn't tell us anything like that on the show, I just assumed that you could just answer the question whenever the hell you wanted. And I think you were right. You could answer the question wherever the hell you wanted. Just they wouldn't necessarily register the question and, and tell you whether it's right or not until after Ava finished. Right. But that did save time. And by the way, I hope that you have time for like five minutes on James, James Holtzhauer at the end. Because as a oh, Jeopardy yes. contestant and somebody who's following this, this amazing run, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. So, so you do end up, and it's always painful, but you do end up, going out on this memory question and it was clearly one where you knew the answer and just yeah. talk us through that yeah so what you don't see there there's a couple of seconds of film edited out in which i said what i actually said was not let me talk through what i see on like you know per talking myself perfectly through what i see and then immediately saying the wrong answer what i did was talk myself through what i see and then said i said Inferno. Oh wait, maybe it's Diablo. Lock it in. Diablo, lock it in. And then, you know, I'm pretty sure I swore at that point and they and they also cut that out of the of the telecast. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because that question was written to be a little bit tricky, not really screw with your head, but like um you know, Inferno and Diablo have both have sort of names associated with hell. And so you're like, you see these flames and you're like, Inferno, oh wait, maybe it could be Diablo. Maybe it's the devil. I don't know. I, and, and Diablo. And um, it, it's, it was basically a case of me talking myself out of the right answer. And of course I'm, I'm annoyed with myself, but you know, it's been several months since we filmed the show at this point. I, you know, it's, it, it's okay. Like I, I'll live. It's I'm actually much more um, bitter about my Jeopardy loss, which was 13 years ago, than I am about this. 
<laughs> well, we will have to talk about that. I, I will say that, you know, I think everyone could feel better because uh, all of us, we missed everyone. Everyone at some point missed a question unless they just ran out of time. But the fact was, you know, being one of the people who took five minutes on question one, that's like, oh, my God, that's the nightmare that everyone has. And mm-hmm. as long as you didn't do that, you're like, OK, I'm feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's in, you know, once I, after the first couple of questions, it felt very, it it was pretty exhilarating. Like that, that's actually the way playing Jeopardy felt too, is that I was more crushed at having to stop playing than I was, at, at least as much about having to stop playing as I was about not winning the money. So what happened on your appearance on Jeopardy? Uh, you said you you lost, but it feels like you're still upset about it. Talk about that. I was winning the whole freaking game until Final Jeopardy. That's why oh. it hurts. If you there's a site called j-archive.com where um, I think it's a fan site where people um, have put out every single Jeopardy game. Like, what are the questions? Who are the players? And all of that, and and you can see like what the board was, and they graph out people's scores over the course of the game. So you can see. If you go and look me up in that, and that's under my maiden name, Stella Daly, is um, that the the line that's my graph never falls below the other two graphs until Final Jeopardy. And Final Jeopardy, by the way, the category was twentieth century women, and I went up against two men, and I lost. Wow, what was? Do you, you probably still remember this? What was? The... Well, word for word, I remember the question. Obviously. Um, in 1964, in a rare interview, she said, all I want to be is the Jane Austen of South Alabama. Got it. All right. So it, for that probably means it's one of two authors. And my guess would be, uh, if I had to guess between the two, I'd be guessing between, just because I know they're Southern, Flannery O'Connor and Harper Lee. And my guess is I would say Harper Lee because she's a recluse. That is correct. Um, and the, the, what for me, yeah, I, I mean, I went through a very similar thought process. I was just like, Southern female writer, Southern female writer. And the only one I could think of at the time was Margaret Mitchell, um, who as Alex Trebek informed me during the credits died in a car crash in 1949 and was not around in 64 to be giving out interviews. Um, also, she's associated with Georgia and not Alabama. But the thing is, um, you know, this was 2006. So Harper Lee was not as much in the news as she has been since, um, you know, Ghost Set a Watchman was published. And um, and then, you know, of course, she passed away. Um, so I hadn't read To Kill a Mockingbird since the sixth grade. She was not top of mind for me at all. The two gentlemen I was competing against, on the other hand, the movie Capote had recently come out. They'd both seen it. Um, Harper Lee and Truman Capote were close friends in, in real life. So she was a character in that movie. Um, so that was, I, in, in some ways, like my lack of film, um, prowess got me there. I'm not, I'm not a big film buff. Um, and, and so I hadn't seen that movie. Got it. Now let's turn our attention to James Holtzhauer, who you've been watching. I've seen some of the episodes. I started hearing the buzz. I'm like, I got to tune in. And I was thinking to myself wow i would hate to be on jeopardy and go up against that guy i would too um he is he he's pretty amazing i and my my husband um uh, has always made fun of me since um you know I, for years after my episode i would watch the show with him i don't watch it every night but i watch it a lot and and some and i'll yell at the television like i could totally take these people 
I don't do that when James Holzhauer is playing. I, I'm, I'm under no illusions that he would take me unless the board were, I don't know, like all ballets and drag queens and classical music and like just basically the three things I know that he doesn't know because it's he knows a lot of stuff and he also has cojones when he bets. Um, you know, I, I think that he's... It, it, someone, statistically, it's going to happen. Someone will beat him at some point, but it's going to be a while. And... It- it's in, it's incredible and you know it just it's a reflection of how important jeopardy is in the american consciousness where he really is a national celebrity at this point yeah i mean so many people ask me about him as as though i like like no you don't actually all know each other there are a lot of jeopardy contestants out there in, in the world um but yeah like it's it's people who like don't watch the show at all are like I've heard about this guy who's a, who's won a million dollars on Jeopardy because it's insane. Nobody's no almost nobody has won a million dollars on Jeopardy. We're still waiting for that grand tournament of champions pitting Ken Jennings against James Holzhauer, and I guess Brett Rutner. It's got to happen. It's the money involved is going to be colossal. Yep. Awesome. So let's, we should, I've kept you on for quite a long time. We're approaching 40 minutes. So we should let people know where they can find out more about you, about your upcoming choir performance, if I can possibly edit this podcast and get it out in time, and wherever else people can learn more about Stella. Sure. Um, so the best way to find me is on Twitter. I'm Stella Phone. Um, thus far, I've pretty much avoided Instagram. I'm on Facebook, Television, but I usually um, don't add people unless I know them personally. And and yes, my choir is performing. We're called the Oratorio Society of New York, and we will be singing uh, Giuseppe Verdi's Requiem at Carnegie Hall at 8 o'clock on Thursday night. That is absolutely amazing. And Stellaphone, just for people who would be tempted to spell it the wrong way, a la movie phone, how is it spelled? Ah, good point. It's uh, on Twitter, S-T-E-L-L-A-P-H-O-N-E. I wanted Stellavision, but it was taken. Well, I think Stellaphone works quite well as well. And thank you so much for taking time out of your evening. I know it's already approaching 9 p.m. New York time, so I appreciate your taking the time and being willing to come on with me. No worries. Great to talk to you again. Always a pleasure. <laughs> That was my interview with Stella Zawistowski. I think you could tell we had a lot of fun with the interview. Ran a little long, but I like to think that all the content was good. So I'm glad we got a chance to talk, to hear the full story behind Stella's life, behind how she met her husband, behind how she got into crosswords, and some of the exciting things she has coming up, especially that performance at Carnegie Hall on Thursday. If you like this episode and you like this Mental Samurai content, please do like share, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. We want to make sure Mental Samurai gets that second season. And if you like hearing from me, Chris Yeh, of course, subscribe to this podcast. And you can also find me on Twitter at Chris Yeh, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H. And you can learn more about me, my books, and all the other things that I do over at ChrisYeh.com. Thanks for listening and speak to you soon.